0: Good morning, Highland Community Church. I hope that you had a wonderful Christmas and that you're ready to head into the new year, 2021. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at your inspired, inerrant word, we ask that you would speak to us today from Psalm 42. We ask, Father, that what you led the psalmist to write would have an impact on our lives as we head into the new year. We ask, Father, that we can put the difficult things of 2020 behind us and look forward to a new, afresh 21. And those things that might have been pure and right and good in 20, may we carry them with us into 21. May it be a year in which many come to Christ. May it be a year in which we who know Christ are grounded deeper in our faith. May it be a year in which we trust more and more deeply in you. May we have the centrality of your son, Christ, as the centrality of our lives. Guide us in your word, in your text today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, 2020 is about to go. Some, probably many, would say good riddance. There was the light. We all survived the toilet paper scare of the century. But there was also the heavy. When has our country been more divided? Maybe Vietnam more likely We go back to 1861 to 65, the Civil War. You look at the politics of our country. When have we been more at each other's throat, more angry, more angst, more fear? Look at the elections. Few are satisfied on either side of the aisle. Many question what went on. Others are firm in their resolution that The election was safe, others say not so much. The White House went to one party. Additions in governorships, the House of Representatives, and state legislators went to the other party. Thank goodness we don't live in the Peach State. One billion dollars is likely to be spent from the last election to the next for two Senate seats to take control, or not, of the Senate? A billion dollars of additional advertisement in one state. Have we ever been more divided, more angry? We look at CV, and there's all sorts of hurt and angst over it. We have individuals who have suffered greatly because of CV as a disease and as a policy of a nation. We have a medical community that has worked hard, long, dangerous hours to safeguard many of us. We have other jobs that have been equally affected and infected by the disease. Many at Highland and in our community and our families have gotten CV. Most, by God's grace, have quickly recovered, yet some have been on CV units for a day, a week, a month, or beyond. Although I'm unaware of anyone who directly attends Highland who died, there's at least a dozen, probably more families that have lost loved ones to CV. People have lost jobs. Livelihoods have been imploded and exploded, and my heart goes out to all who have been affected. I think of something as important to all of us as education, and yet the topic divides houses, divides churches, divides people. We're divided for the first time in our nation on whether we ought to be in-person or virtual or a combination of in-person and virtual. We've always been divided on the best type of education for an individual family, whether public school or home school or private school or virtual school, but that division has grown. We are heavily divided as a nation over ethics and morals. I would assert with the strongest of language that what God calls evil, too often our nation calls good, and what our nation calls good, God often calls evil as we slide further and further into the abyss, away from the Lord's teachings and truths. We are a divided nation. We have somehow decided at certain spots that riots are a good way to handle our problems, and we destroy property and destroy people's livelihoods to somehow change policy. Phrases like defund, has become the bane of many, and yet supported by others. We have all sorts of disagreements over whether an executive order has any right to impact our lives because it's not law by legislation. We have all sorts of debate among us on whether we should defund this or defund that. Whether we should have omnibus legislation, whether we should send out stimulus packages, whether even churches should take stimulus money, which was offered the first time around and and Highland chose at the end not to take any money. We're supported by ourselves, not the government. There is all sorts of debate, all sorts of angst. Have we been this divided as a nation? Due to the division, mental illness is exponential. Never in my years of pastoring have I seen more individuals have such angst, such pain, such anger such mental illness. Never have I seen more people tempted by suicide. And I'm not just talking about one church or one community. I'm talking about a nation and, in fact, a globe, a world. I think perhaps we need a new perspective. And although I don't always do so, some years I've preached at the end of the year to bring us into the new year. And so I thought and I prayed and I thought and I prayed for a long time, what would God have me preach on? And I'd almost settled on Romans 12, one and two. I appeal to you therefore brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship, which is reasonable. Do not be conformed to this world. Any longer be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In fact, Betty Ann and I talked about it one evening, and we thought that would be a great text. And then we sat down to dinner, and as is our habit, several days a week, we have devotions together and we were reading through the Psalms and I happened to have read Psalm 41, a great Psalm, by the way, the night before. And so this night we were in Psalm 42 and as I read Psalm 42, it was as if a light bulb went on and it was as if the Lord said, that's the Psalm, that's what I want you to talk about. Psalm 42, allow me to read it. The superscript reads as follows. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now verse one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts, songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why? Notice verse 5 is the same as verse 11, which is the same as verse 5 of the next chapter. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, that's the answer. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, that's Mount Hermon, from Mount Mizar, which are the foothills to Mount Hermon. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, he's up near Dan, way up north. All your breakers and your waves, they've gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deeply wound, In my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let me set the scene. Now this psalm, like many others, has a superscript above verse 1. A superscript has been added by a later redactor, a later editor. Not all the Psalms have superscripts, but a superscript usually tells us who it is that the author, the human author is, and maybe even the historical setting. Now we have to understand that these superscripts are not inspired, they are not inerrant. They were added by a later redactor but they tell us something of how the early church understood the text. Now, I think a good question to ask is how old are the superscripts? Well, interestingly enough, not all Psalms have it, and it's not just one redactor that went through and gave it, and so the dates differ. But what we know about the superscripts is this. We have no manuscript or extra-biblical evidence that they were in the text prior to 450 B.C. And yet in cave 11 of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we got a psalm scroll, the superscripts exist. Now that particular psalm scroll is actually not very dated among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's probably around 30 A.D. So we know the superscripts were written somewhere after 450 B.C., and 30 AD, somewhere in that span. I'm gonna suggest that it's probably closer to that 450 than the 30 AD, maybe around 400, pretty close to the time of Malachi, the last prophet. So superscripts are not inspired, they're not inerrant, they're not original, but they are incredibly valuable because they tell us how the early church understood the text, and this text, is said to have been written by the sons of Korah, one of eight psalms written by the sons of Korah. And it is a mascal, that is a psalm for instruction. And so we know a little bit about the text. Now, as you look at the text, it tells us it's to the choir master, which means that, well, this is a liturgy that was sung or spoken. And again, it's the sons of Korah. You remember Korah, right? Numbers chapter 26. He's an incorrigible man. He is an evil man. (coughs) He opposes Israel's greatest prophet, who is Moses, outside of Christ, of course. So he opposes Moses, and he actually garners 250 leaders to stand against Moses, to kind of overthrow Moses. Now his sons realize that he is not a godly man and they don't stand with their dad. And the Lord is so upset with Korah and these 250 that stand against Moses that God takes their lives. The sons, of course, don't lose their lives because, well, they did not stand with their father. And herein lies the wonderful thing. God allows them to become Levites they become actually a special type of Levite, a Koathite, which is actually a Colethite, and we'll talk about that in a moment. This is great news. Maybe some of you have grown up in a house that does not honor the Lord. Maybe some of you have broken from a family history that is not God-honoring. Know this. You have been set free, and God may have great things for you to do for his kingdom your past is not an indicator or a barrier or a set of handcuffs for your present and the future. The sons of Korah are used by God to write eight psalms. And your father was incorrigible, so much so that God himself struck him dead. And they were Kohathites. You remember Kohathites. There's a very famous one in scripture. It's in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13, his name is Uzzah. You remember Uzzah. Now, if you're a Kohathite, you're a type of Levite that has been taught from birth to handle the sacred items of God that are kept in the temple. That's your only job. You don't actually lead worship. You're, you're a worship pastor, but your job is those sacred items. And you are taught from birth if you're a Kohathite. Don't touch the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Two feet, by four feet, by two and a half feet, pure acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Then on top, you have the cherubim. Inside, you have the rod or staff of Aaron. You have the Ten Commandments, and you have some manna. That's the throne of God, and it's built with several rings, and then you would put the poles in it, and so if you have to move the ark, you don't touch it, you put in the poles and you have a Kohathite Levite on both sides who pick it up and carry it on their shoulders. You never touch the ark. You never put the ark on the cart. You always carry the ark. You have been taught your whole life. You have one role, one job, one message. You care for the sacred artifacts in the temple. And there's a prescribed way to do so. And yet, you remember Uze, he has to transport it. And he thinks, you know, why should I carry this thing? Man, I got bowling league later on. I don't want to be tired for that. And so rather than the poles, they put it on a cart. And as it transports, it was a rough road apparently. It hits a bump and it bounces up. The arc bounces up and... And this Colithite, this man from birth who has been taught, don't touch the ark or you die, he reaches out to steady the ark and to teach him and to teach us about the holiness of God. And not to tight cut corners when God says, do you do, and God says, don't you don't. And he reaches out his hands thinking that somehow his hands are cleaner than dirt. And God takes his life. Uzzah is a relative of the sons of Korah, the ones who were led by God to pen this text. One last introductory remark. As you read the text, as you heard it, especially verse six, when they're at the foothills of Mount Mizar, which is near Mount Hermon, which is just near the the breakers of Dan, where the water bubbles up out of the ground. They're heading away from Jerusalem. They are Levites. They're worship pastors. They're Kohathites. They're supposed to be in the temple. They're 80 miles away, and they're looking back, and there's tears in their eyes. And so now we know what the text is about. It's about the Babylonian captivity. Israel has disobeyed God for 490 years. 490 years, they've had no regard for the Lord. And God said, I've had enough. I'm gonna carry you into captivity, one year of captivity for every seven years of disobedience. That's grace, by the way. And so for 70 years, they'll be carried away. The priests and the leading officials will be carried into Babylon first and the Medo-Persian Empire second. And so these priests who long to be in the temple Who long to serve in the temple. They're away from the temple. They're heading towards Babylon. They're looking back at Jerusalem. They're 80 miles away. Their hearts are torn within them. And that's the setting of which they begin in verse 1 as the deer pants for living waters, so my soul panteth after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, whence. Shall I come and appear before God? I love it. The more this world fades from a priority of our life, the more real, the more big God becomes in our hearts. I love it. The allure of this world fades as the allure of God grows. They're in a terrible spot. They're a part of the Babylonian captivity. They're being (coughs) taken from the temple. This is a horrible situation in their lives. And what do they say? As a deer panteth for the water. So my soul panteth after thee. They want more of God. It's not, I've got to have devotions. I've got to have a time of prayer. I've got to somehow fit God in. Maybe... Corporate worship a couple times a month? Maybe. No. The allure of this world has not captured their heart. The allure of God grows in their heart and as a deer panteth for the water, so my soul panteth after thee. I want this. I want this. May this be true for us in 2021. May the allure of God Grow in our hearts, regardless of what happens around us. May the allure of God be the driving force, the preeminent force in our lives. These Levites are not wasting a tragedy. Back in March of 2020, our lives were upended. And I remember thinking, I've got to stop my series of sermons in Corinthians. And I've got to preach through Philippians to talk about joy. And I remember saying, don't waste the tragedy. And today is a day of reckoning, a day of report card. What have we done? Have we wasted the tragedy or have we grown more towards the Lord? Has the allure of the world captured us or the allure of God captured us? Whether you're in your living room and Because of health concerns, you have to watch online or whether you're in person. The question is still valid. Have we wasted the tragedy or have we become more and more like Christ? One of the concerns that many in the evangelical church have is that people have gotten out of the habit of regular corporate worship. The people have said, you know, I can catch it later on in the day or tomorrow or, or next week. Or, and they've gotten out of the habit of personal devotion, personal prayer. The allure of the world and the despondency with what's going on in the world has overtaken us. And rather than the tragedy drawing us to God, it's pushed us away. What is it for you? What has happened in your life and in mine I want us to notice also that for this group of Colethites, Levites, they're not only facing the opposition of being carried into Babylon, they're facing the opposition of others. Isn't that true for us? Let me read verse 3 and verse 10 again. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That is, bad things are happening. You must not have a God that cares. Or verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? If he's a real God, he'd do something. Now, who is the they? We don't know for sure. Some would say it's gotta be the Babylonians who are worshiping false idols. And so they mock those from Judea who have been carried into captivity. If they had a real God, they wouldn't be in captivity. Others say, no, it's actually some of the Jews who have been carried into captivity. And they're so despondent that they're accusing God. They're angry at God. They're now disinterested and distant from God. I would say the answer is both. Both Babylonians and Jews are looking at those who are faithful and saying, hey, what kind of God do you serve? If he was a real God, he would have prevented this. If he were a real God, he would have done something. What kind of God do you serve? And I suspect in 2020, not you, but I suspect in 2020, Some are saying that outside the church. Some are saying it in the church. God, what are you allowing this? This political turmoil. What are you allowing this disease? What are you allowing borders to shut down? And what are you allowing this? What kind of God are you? And some who are more of the atheistic bent are saying, this is proof There is no God. Or maybe even some Christ followers are saying, Lord, the elections, I don't know. It's a mixed bag, God. Why didn't you do something? Come on, God. Why are you allowing this, whatever this is? Probably it's something that we wanted that didn't happen. And we get accusatory towards God. The psalmist understands he too, he is stretched. He's struggling as he's carried into captivity. Look at verses five and six. Why? Why are you cast down O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? My soul is cast down within me. Verse nine, it says this. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression? Of the enemy. <laughs> really? Really? This is an author, a human author of scripture? We should expect better, right? Why have you forgotten me, God? Why have you allowed my enemies to oppress me, God? Why aren't you doing something, God? What kind of author is this? What kind of scripture author is that we'd expect better, right? No. No. It's a lament, there's a lot of laments in the Psalms. This is why we love the Psalms. This is why the Psalms speak to our hearts because the Psalmist dares to say what we're thinking, what we're feeling, how we're feeling. We never stay in the midst of our lament, never, but we have the right to express our concern, to express our heartbreak, to express our despondency. We love the Psalms because they're real. We love the Psalms because they speak to our situation. We love the Psalms because we relate to them. They're alive. But it's not just the Psalmist. We see this all over scripture. I think of Moses. Moses is Israel's greatest prophet outside of Christ. That's not just man's opinion, that's God's opinion. You remember the epitaph of Moses' life written by God in Deuteronomy 34, where we read this, and there has not arisen a prophet like Moses since, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's pretty clear. There is no equal of Moses, who God spoke to face to face. And yet you remember, You remember in Numbers chapter 11, Moses essentially said, God, beam me up. Beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here. I need to get out of this place. I've had enough. And he's filled with despondency. He's filled with lament until he looks again back at God. This is is the greatest prophet outside of Christ. And he wants to leave this earth. I think of Job. You remember in Job 1.8, God himself said, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the face of the earth. He has no equal in his ethical and moral purity. No equal, there's none like him. Have you considered my servant Job? And yet those four friends come. Zophar, Bildu, or Bildad, Elihu, and the other, I can't remember his name, they, they, they come and they speak nonsense from chapter four to chapter 37. Utter nonsense. And we get this lament from Job. The heaviness, the weight. And yet then he will look back to God. I think of Moses I think of Job, I think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an author of Scripture, having been guided by God's Spirit to write Jeremiah and Lamentations. Don't read Lamentations on your birthday. It's a little bit heavy, right? It's all lament. Because he looks at the the sin of Judah and he's filled with despondency and pain. There's real lament in his life. And then he looks to God. And then there's Elijah. Elijah is certainly a top five prophet. And he says in 1 Kings 19, I and I alone have been faithful to you, God. And God says, no way. Elijah, there's 7,000 that have been faithful. And Elijah wants to have his life ended, to be done with it. And God will have none of it. And each of these men and the psalmist are called to look back to God, to take their eyes off the news. I mean, I'm still trying to decide how much news is too much news for me. How much news is too much news for you? I need more prayer. I need more scripture. I need to hope in God more. I don't want to stick my head in the sand and not know what's going on. But how much news is too much news? How much despondency can you and I take? Hope in God. That's what the message is. Let me read verses one and two again. As a deer panteth for living water, so my soul panteth after me. Verse five, hope in God. Verse 11, hope in God. Verse 5 of chapter 43, and by the way, 42 and 43 were one psalm at one time. Hope in God. Do you see a theme? Verse 5, verse 11, verse 5, they're the same verse. Three times, what are we told in the midst of despondency, in the midst of pain? Hope in God. Take your eyes off the news and put it onto God. Spend more time with the living waters. In Scripture, hope in God. And you might say, they pay you for this? That's all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. But it's good enough. It's good enough. Rather than pushing God to the back burner in the midst of the tragedy, hope in God, spend more time with God, pray to God. It is enough. Did 2020 go the way I wanted? No. Did it go the way you wanted? Probably not. I think part of the problem is we have too much hope here. First Peter tells us that we are strangers and aliens passing through. You remember Psalm 20, verse 7? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, God's people, trust in the name of the Lord our God. I think that's part of my problem. I'm trusting in a political system. Oh, I vote. I've always voted. I write letters. I've always written letters. I talk to anyone who asks me my political views. I've always done that. But I'm not going to trust in chariots. I'm not going to trust in horses. I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord, my God. I have the highest degree of confidence in the medical community. And I think highly of science, but that's not my ultimate hope. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. I've got to figure out without sticking my head in the sand because I want to be salt, I want to be light. Matthew 5, 13 to 17. How much news is too much? How much despondency can I take? And have I taken my eyes off the Lord and begun to trust in chariots and begun to trust in horses? When God tells me to trust in him, that I'm a stranger, and alien, I'm passing through, yes, I need to impact my world. Yes, I need to vote my conscience. But my eyes aren't on the political system. It's not even on science. My eyes are on the Lord. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Or as the psalmist says, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. And in case we missed it, hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may we learn or relearn or continue for those who have been most faithful to hope in you. May we hope in you, whether 2021 is awesome or mediocre or challenging. May we look to you, hope in you. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.